Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Lit Service, where we're fans of fiction and purveyors of dodgy writing advice. I'm Aaliyah, and I stand out in life by going barefoot in the winter to get the mail. Huh. And I'm Cameron, and I don't do this to stand out, but I'm constantly wearing bats with shirts on them, and people ask. Hmm, that should be the other way around. Bats with shirts or shirts with bats? Bats with shirts You on would them? really stand out if you wore bats <laughs> with shirts on them. <laughs> Your little pet bats with their clothes. It'd be like little chihuahuas <laughs> that get dressed up. I don't actually believe in clothes. I believe in garbing yourself in a living colony of bats. There we go. Yikes. <laughs> I'm Caitlin, and I don't do anything in particular to stand out, but ever since I was a kid, my hair has stood out. Like, everyone wants to touch my hair at all times. Like, I still remember sitting in high school English and the person behind me just pulling my curls one by one to see if they would bounce. So, there you go. (laughs) Or, actually, once, I walked into one of my classes and the entire chalkboard had been shaded in, and at the bottom it said, Caitlin's hair. (laughs) I was definitely traumatized for the rest of my life, so... That's so sad. Um, I'm Kristen, and I stand out because I listen to audiobooks while I walk, and I often make visible reactions to whatever has happened in my audiobook, and people notice and give me weird faces. I'm Sarah, and I don't think I stand out very much, except, actually, yeah, people come on my eyes all the time, especially in dark rooms, which is weird. You have dark room eyes. <laughs> what do they well, say? Just because my eyes are like this ice blue color. And so they're like, your eyes are so blue. I don't even know how to respond to that. Like, yes. That's awesome. I mean, as far as things to be noticed about, though, it's better than like, my goodness, that growth on your face, you know. So, <laughs> so today, a huge welcome to our special guest, Sarah Nicholas, who is the author of Dragons Are People Too and Keeping Her Secret and who is the current managing director of Pitch Wars. So tell us a little bit about your book, Sarah. Yeah, they're very different. Dragons of People 2 is an urban fantasy about a dragon shapeshifter who works for the U.S. government. And she's in charge of protecting the president's son, and he gets kidnapped, and the president asks her to rescue him. And there's lots of other things going on there, too. And then Keeping Her Secret is like a light and fluffy summer camp romance between two girls with a prank war. I'm so ready for summer so I can get back into light summer reading again. (laughs) So today, we really wanted to dig deep and get into the nitty-gritty of what is Pitch Wars, how to stand out in them. So to start, a good question would be, what is Pitch Wars? How did it start? And Sarah, what do you see as the benefits of it? Let's start with what is Pitch Wars. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so Pitch Wars is like a mentoring organization where established writers and industry professionals mentor an up-and-coming writer. And so the submission process is very similar to the traditional query submission process, uh, except you choose four mentors to submit to. And then out of all those, the mentors go through and they read the original submissions, which are, you know, query and first chapter and a synopsis. And they request more if they want to see more. And ultimately, they have to choose one person and they do a full round of revisions with them. And they also work with them on their submission materials. And then at the end, we have an agent showcase where short pitches and first pages get put up on the blog and agents go through and they can make requests. You guys are right at the end of that process right around now, aren't you? Yeah, the showcase starts February 7th. So all our materials are due January 31st. Wow, that's coming up really fast. So if I understand it correctly, you guys get a lot of attention, don't you? There's a lot of really big books that come out of Pitch Wars. Yeah, so it started in 2012, and then I think it was 
two, two, when was it? 2015, 2016 was when Tomi Ariyami's Children of Blood and Bone was in the contest. And it got a lot of attention and took off and obviously did very well. And so, especially since then, we've seen like a huge growth in the amount of tension that people play to it and also like the amount of importance that people lay on it. <laughs> so what would you say are some of the benefits for really going the pitch wars route as opposed to just sticking it out in the trenches? The people that I think find the most benefit in it are people who their manuscript isn't really getting the attention that they would like and they don't know why and they've gone as far as they're able to go on their own. So sometimes you can find, like a mentor will have kind of a vision for, this is good, but this is how we make it great. And so people who value that revision process, that editing process, and the mentor are probably the people who get the most out of it. And then um, after, even after the agent showcase, a lot of people still kind of keep in touch with their mentor. And a lot of mentors will, will continue to help the person, whether it's like, you know, doing another round of revisions or going through the query process that's not required of a mentor, but a lot of them end up doing it, especially if they have kind of formed a relationship over a couple months of the program. Well, and I feel like not just from like the editing perspective or just even having somebody with you to hold your hand, this is valuable because I mean, so much in the publishing world is networking too. Like it's really important to have friends or to know people who are part of the industry just so yeah. that you don't die of loneliness for one thing, but also <laughs> just because it's like any other business where part of it is about who you know. And I feel like if agents find you through pitch wars, they're probably less likely to think that you are a scary person who queries them 50 times. I don't know. <laughs> There's already been yeah, some that, vetting. <laughs> networking is definitely like a big part of pitch wars and not even like the, um, I mean, the mentors or the mentees that make it in every year. They have like groups, you know, that they get to know each other in and a lot of them come out with really good friends on the other side. But also even just beforehand, there's a lot of community around it before the submission process even starts and people trade critiques and they get to know each other and they even form like Facebook groups and stuff for what we call hopefuls. So people before they even enter will like start forming groups and connecting with each other. And then the mentors do a lot of work up at that time too in education. Like they do a lot of blog posts and, and Twitter chats and all kinds of stuff to help answer people's questions and to help people improve their queries before the process even starts. So even if you don't end up with a mentor, you might end up with a group of friends and like people to help you with stuff or critique group even. Oh yeah, definitely. We see a lot of people who said that they found critique partners or they formed a group because they got to know each other like during the lead up to the submission process. Awesome. Can you tell us real briefly how Pit Mad is different from Pitch Wars? Yes, it's different in every way. Okay. <laughs> so Pit Mad is a Twitter pitch event that happens four times a year. And you just tweet your pitch along with hashtag PitMad and your age category hashtag and also any like genre hashtags that may apply to it. And agents make requests by liking the tweets. And so if an agent likes your tweet, you can go to their profile. They've usually said, if I like your tweets, send, you know, query in first chapter to this email address or something. And so there's no mentorship involved. It's just like pitching and also small, like small press editors and edit acquiring editors from houses participate in PitMed as well. 
Whereas in Pitch Wars, it's only Asians that participate in the showcase. And it's funny because a lot of people think Pitch Wars is like a Twitter-based contest because you see so much interaction on Twitter. But actually, the entire actual contest takes place off of Twitter. So people who don't even have Twitter accounts participate in Pitch Wars. That's good to know. But you have to have a Twitter account to be in PitMad. Yes, you do. And some people have a Twitter account only for PitMad. So how can an aspiring author stand out in either of these contests? What can they do to stand out in an online situation? It's different. I'll talk about PitMad because I feel like that's a little bit easier. The main mistake that I see, so I was a social media manager last year and I still continue to volunteer with PitMad, which basically means I spend 12 hours, four times a year, like watching these tweets go by. And I think the main mistake that people make in PitMad is they don't really grab the attention right away. And so their first sentence will be like, so-and-so is just a normal girl. And if you're thinking, uh, like, these tweets are literally coming in 60, 70 a minute. And so if you're trying to scroll through that and that's your first sentence, that's not going to get anyone's attention, you know? I really think with Twitter, you have so little space there that you really need to just use that first line as effectively as you can. And I think that's why a lot of times kind of the um, comp title pitches work so well, or just starting with a log line works really well. A logline is just a sentence that describes the essence of your book. So rather than starting it like a query where you're kind of setting the background or whatever, you're giving all the good juicy bits like right up front. And that definitely works more effectively than trying to go, trying to compress a query down to a tweet. It's like the, the elevator pitch. Yeah. Yes. Kind of. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. Like if someone's like walking away from you, what are you going to say to them to get them <laughs> to you shout around? after them? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's Jurassic Park meets persuasion. I don't know. I would, I would read like that book. <laughs> Marianne Mancusi actually has a really great pitch for, I think it's Scorched. She says it's Terminator, but with dragons. Oh, that's And awesome. so like, you know, right away exactly what that story is, you know? Yeah, that's Mm -hmm. true. That's kind of the art of comp titles, I guess, is making it really clear what you mean by pairing those two books together. I was going to say, in Pitch Wars, it's a little bit different because you're using a query first page and synopsis. And it's also much harder to answer because everyone reads a little bit differently. Like some of the mentors will actually read the first page before they read the query. Whereas I, I was a publicist, like pitches are, are my thing, you know? And so I read the query, but I'm not looking for like perfection. You know, I'm not looking for whenever I'm reading for mentorship and not, I'm not looking for a perfect query. I'm just looking for an idea that I could be interested in. It's really all it comes down to. And you'd be surprised how many queries actually don't even get to the idea of the book. They'll tell you the reason why they wrote it. They'll tell you all the themes that it has. And then there's no actual information about the plot or the characters. I always tell people, like, if you just follow basic guidelines and you know what a query is supposed to look like and you kind of have something that looks like that, like, you're already in the top 50% at that point. So what would you say is some of the top things authors should get across in their queries? Conflict and stakes are really the two most important things. Um, And then I phrase this another way, like, what does your main character want? What stands in the way of getting what they want? And what happens if they don't get what they want? And as long as it answers those three questions, like, that's it. That's a query. I cannot tell you how many, like, workshops and, like, every time I teach, I'm like, your first chapter and your query. Well, I guess your first chapter doesn't have to have those things, but they need to be moving towards those things really fast. But, Mm -hmm. like, in YA anyway. 
as a person who spends a ton of time in a slush pile, I'm grateful for any time <laughs> someone takes the time to repeat those for people who maybe haven't heard them before because it yeah. makes a huge difference. It's the refrain. Like every class, I'm like, yep. <laughs> what do they want? Why can't they have it? What happens to them if they don't get it? Yeah. It, may, it yeah. makes such a big difference in readability for queries. And yeah, it makes a huge, huge difference. I'm just thinking about all the things I looked at today that didn't answer that. So <laughs> <laughs> that's when you just keep reading, you keep scanning past next one. So another thing that we wanted to hear from you, Sarah, is uh, I think you've mentioned in the past that you're really passionate about helping new writers avoid publishing scams. What sort of scams are we talking about here? And what are some of the red flags that we should keep our eyes out for? Yeah. So scam is like a weird word, right? Because like, it implies that they're promising something they're not delivering. And that's not what most of the things we're talking about are. They're, they're people who are promising exactly what they're delivering, but at an, an inflated cost and lower value than what you should expect. And so the biggest problem that I see, so I work at a library, right? And I plan author and writing events. That's my day job. And in Florida, so I see hundreds of writers every year who just don't know enough about publishing and they enter into a contract that is predatory and they don't realize it because they think that's how it's supposed to be. And the person is telling them this is how it's supposed to be. Like just the other day I had someone who, who's, I feel like is pretty knowledgeable, at least in the world of indie publishing. And they told another person who was in the room with them that if your book didn't sell well enough with the traditional press, you had to pay your advance back which is just not normal terms in traditional publishing. But it was, you know, someone that she had known signed a contract that said that, and they told them that it was normal terms. And so now her and all her friends think this is normal, right? And so I think the, the number one thing you can do is just to educate yourself with people, reliable resources. And so I see a lot of like kind of local workshops from people who are saying things that are, are not true. So there's like one person that goes to a lot of sci-fi cons around where I live. And some of the things that he says are just, just completely untrue about the industry, but the new writers in the room don't realize that. And he says them with such confidence that, you know, why wouldn't you believe him? And so you got to really check your resources and make sure that you're getting information from like a, a good source, you know, and even, if you want to like vary it up a little bit, if you're not sure whether traditional publishing is right for you or self-publishing is right for you, uh, you should read resources who kind of advocate for both avenues and use your, your judgment to determine, you know, who, who has your best interests at heart. You should never, ever, ever take publishing advice from someone who is also in the same breath trying to sell you a publishing service. Good advice. Are there any resources that people could go to look at if they're trying to figure out if they have a predatory contract? Oh, yeah. The biggest one, obviously, is Writer Beware. It's run by the Science Fiction Writers of America, and there's someone else that partners with them on it, I think. But they have they have a blog where they discuss, like, kind of the latest news, and they have a place where you can check agents and publishers, and then it has... They also have kind of, like, blogs, posts about what normal contract terms are, for example... And then the Authors Guild is good as well, especially if you're signing a publishing contract without an agent, you can get the Authors Guild to review it for you. And then, I mean, Writer's Digest is big, but they're big for a reason, and they have a lot of good articles on there. Yeah, I think those are my top three. <laughs> good to those know. Excellent. 
Well, now we move on to the second portion of our podcast where we model a writing group on an audience submission. A quick review, we try to be non-prescriptive, which means we, we examine the issues we see but don't necessarily suggest solutions unless we want to, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> but if you'd like to check out the text of the submission and see all our notes, check on our website, litservicepodcast.wixsite.com slash litnation. If you would like a first chapter critique from us, you can find our submission guidelines there as well. Summary of this week's chapter. A girl with the power to feel others' emotions and read minds moves to a new school and discovers a murder plot against her cousin. So, what are some things we liked in this chapter? I think the premise itself is really interesting. I like the idea of an empath um, overhearing a plot to murder her friend in a school where she's new. So, we all we really know is like that someone is trying to kill JD but we don't know who that person is or why they're doing it or how they're going to do it. So there's a lot of element of mystery there that I think can be really interesting. Right at the very beginning, all we have is the who, and we're already really intrigued as to why and and how she's going to convince the people around her that this is really what's going on. So I thought that was good. I agree. And even before then, before we find out she's an empath, we're finding out that she has trouble processing everything that's going on and that she feels hot and then cold and she needs to give her brain a break. And so when we find out that she's an empath and that's why she's been feeling overwhelmed, it really made sense to me. I remember agreeing with most of y'all's statements as well, but I also wanted to add, like, I just thought the writing was good. It was crisp and clear. And that's something I think we sometimes overlook when we're doing critiques is like, I could read this and not be confused, you know? And so I think that was really a positive. Yeah, I agree. At least on a sentence to paragraph level, I didn't have any difficulty understanding what the author was trying to get across most of the time. There are a couple of really great lines. Like there's um, a line about her cousin, how he, there's a girl talking about her cousin and he sa- she says, he corrects me all the time, but it's nice. And then um, the main character has this thought afterwards, it's nice to know that my cousin still can't let wrong things go, which I thought was a really great character moment, both for her, because she doesn't know her cousin anymore, but also for him. We know what we're going to be getting into as soon well, as we and meet him. That might be a little bit of foreshadowing for why they're trying to kill him. So yeah, Maybe. I thought that she's not, it's not the cousin that they're trying to kill, though. It's his friend. Well, right? I know, but we're, yeah. we're learning, like, a detail about him. Because we just don't know anything about him. I'm, I'm really interested to find out if, like, if I'm on Team JD and I want him to stay alive. Or if I'm on Team Cowboy Boots and, like, JD deserves to die. <laughs> and so there are a couple ways it could go. <laughs> and I just, any details that we can get about him in this early part of the book is really interesting. If we're good to move on to things that might need a second look... I did have some confusion over the the relationships because I think Allie is the main character's name and she mentions that she used to be best friends with her cousin and his friend JD, but then they had an argument where she was called stuck up and that caused a rift for four years. And to me, that I didn't quite buy that because it seemed like if they were super close, just being called stuck up wasn't a big enough thing to drive them apart for four years. For me, the biggest issue was the sense of place and time as we're jumping between the different scenes. You know, we have very short scene at the beginning, and then we jump to another place in time, same viewpoint character, and then we have another jump in one to back when she's like 11, I think. And all three times, I really struggled for a few paragraphs to understand like where we are, why are we here, what's going on. Well, and also, like, what it is I'm supposed to be taking from it, because there's there's an initial paragraph where 
something big happens. She like hears this girl or this girl picks up her phone and she um, something happens to change Allison's life. And then we have this whole scene where a girl actually does pick up her phone and then talks about wanting to murder her friend. So I'm like, is that the same scene that we got like a snippet of at the beginning? I'm not actually sure. The relation between the two, two scenes isn't clear, and we can't yeah. and, and like and like you can't assume they're chronological because you know the very next thing the book does is jump way back in time to when she's eleven. So there's there's no earmarking Which, when what happens. Yeah, when we first switched to the eleven year old perspective, I thought it was like a present tense horror. Someone is chasing me because she's like in a baler. And I was like, when's the bailer going to turn on? And I, had, I actually had the exact like, same reaction. I was worried about that too. And I don't even know what a bailer <laughs> is, but I was like, this is machinery and something bad's going to happen. <laughs> so like, and then when she gets out, we find out she's playing flashlight tag with her cousin and his friend. And like, there's no stress involved, which I mean, is fine if you're setting the stage for like a book with blood and chasing and like you're making promises there, but they're not made at the beginning of the book. Like Cameron said, the transition there, I wasn't sure what was going on. Yeah, I agree. I think it seems like that first part was a bit of a flash forward to the scene that we immediately get a couple of pages later. So I don't think, if that's the case, I don't think it was necessary because we all, we get that very soon anyway. Um, and then, yeah, when the scene opened up where they're playing tag, I definitely thought she was hiding from some, I mean, we just talked about murder and now she's hiding, you know, in a bailer. And I also don't really feel how that connects to the overall story other than to introduce the cousin. I had a kind of small thing about, so when Allie's in the bathroom, she hears, plus it's the perfect place to hide his body. And I assumed it was a text. I think there's a possibility that it isn't a text and that it's a thought. But if it's a text, it for me, it brought the tension way, way down because it seems to me like anyone who's texting openly about a murder they're about to commit is probably not going to be a very good murderer or they're going to get caught. So, I, I mean, I can think of ways around that or exceptions, but I feel like it would have to be justified for that to work for me. Yeah, I when we jump from empathy to thought reading, I had a little bit of like vertigo. I was like, wait, why hasn't she been doing this the whole time? Which I don't know if that's a huge deal. But I also had that thought when like I wasn't sure if she's thinking this or if she's reading a text or, or what or writing a text. I guess. Yeah, I had a, a similar reaction. I was wondering if we could at least hint at the mind reading a little bit earlier because at the beginning it kind of just reads like um, – like an introverted person who needs to, you know, find a place to hide every now and then and, and you know, refresh their battery. Which I can unfortunately identify with personally. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I think I would have liked to seen, if not just like obvious, like some kind of hint that when you do find out she's a mind reader, you can think back to and be like, oh, that's what that was about. Mm-hmm. I had one more thing. Um, so the conversation between Cowboy Boots, who turns out to be, I think her name is Jillian. And then the cheerleader, the cheerleader in cowboy boots, which I think that's funny. I wasn't sure I followed the conversation exactly because it felt a little made in butlery. The cheerleader starts out by saying, oh, do you think that Brooks, the cousin, is going to ask me to prom? I'm so excited slash worried. Like, I really hope that happens. And then the other girl immediately is like, yeah, let's do that. And then I'll go with JD as if it was already a foregone conclusion. So I wasn't really sure 
if she was actually worried about it, it seems like we're trying to get information across rather than actually convey what this cheerleader girl is actually feeling because she's suddenly not worried about whether or not he's going to ask her and is suddenly like planning how to have it happen, if that makes sense. Like it's two different conversations in my mind. Did you guys feel that way? I actually had the same, I had some confusion there. Um, I think mostly just because, uh, I think it's the line, the homecoming is such a good idea. I'm so glad I thought of it where, yeah, exactly. Did she think about it because it was somebody else's idea? I, I just got a little confused there. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah, well, I just said one last thing. So one half of the the turning point evidence that something's going down here. So the first half is, you know, the whole, well, I can feel that she's really, really angry and hateful about this guy. But then she, you know, texts the message using the phrase, hide his body. And the hide his body is, is focused on for a few paragraphs. It's like, well, what did she mean? Is it like some kind of local slang? And I, I mean, maybe this is revealing more about me than I want to put on the air, but I use hide the body in casual conversation all the time. So. (laughs) We have yet to uncover them, Cameron. I don't know. It just didn't feel like, like if you you take it in combination with, you know, the feelings and the intent that she's getting, yeah, that's worrying. But the phrase by itself, I don't know. I don't feel like it's that out there. Like as a text, especially if it's a thought, but even as a text based on the context of her conversation, it didn't come across that way to me. Like it's something that even could have been a euphemism or a a slang thing. So what did you guys think? Yeah, I'm a pretty ruthless person. I don't use hide the body in my casual conversation. (laughs) I do sometimes use the phrase like where the bodies are buried, which is kind Mm. of a different thing, but similar. The, yeah, the only time I would use hide the body, it, it would be if I was joking about killing somebody, but that doesn't happen often. So. <laughs> well, and she's not joking about killing no, someone. We know not. that she's feeling she's angry. very serious. Yeah. Yeah, I think, honestly, though, I think I'm with Cameron on this one. I, I like the idea of it being, I don't know, just when she sends it as a text, it just seems too direct for someone who actually wants to murder someone. So it goes back to Kristen's comment before that it just seems seems like a dangerous thing to text if it's an actual actual yeah, plot. It seems to like the someone. first place the police would look. <laughs> yeah, the phone records, <laughs> the texts. Okay, then to this author, thanks for submitting. We enjoyed reading your work, and Sarah, thank you so much for coming on the show and for sharing your wisdom with us. Oh wow! Thank you for having me. For <laughs> <sure>. <laughs> Audience, be sure to check out their books, "Dragons Are People Too" and "Keeping Her Secret." Our next guest will be Tay Keller, author of When You Trap a Tiger and The Science of Breakable Things. If you would like a first chapter critique from Tay, be sure to check out our submission guidelines on our website and get your chapter to us by January 30th. Thank you to our intern, Lindsay Owens, for everything she does, and also to Matt Harris for help with sound design. If you want to ask us questions, tell us we're awesome, or whine about how your writing is going, you can find us on Twitter at LitService or on Facebook and Instagram as at LitServicePodcast. We frequently do challenges where you can win books or first chapter critiques, so check that out. Or you can email us at LitServicePodcast at gmail.com. Please remember to rate, review, and share the podcast. It helps people to find the show. For Lit Service, thanks for listening. We'll see you in two weeks. <laughs>